0: Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome. CC. Hello and welcome. One, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling.
1: What we want to do is remove the barriers that exist today for creators to come together, make valuable content, own their piece of that content and derive the financial value when it goes out to market.
0: Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 42, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. So I come to you today, or maybe I should say tonight as I record this. It's Tuesday evening, and uh, I sit here in my hotel room, and I am in Klamath Falls, Oregon. And I'm betting that there are not many of you have ever, ever, ever heard of that town, let alone set foot here. Klamath Falls is about yeah five and a half hours drive south of Portland Oregon and I happen to be here on the west coast uh, for the next two weeks um, doing some shoots doing some work here and uh, it is a bit strange to to return to return here because, um, as many of you probably are aware, about a half a year ago, actually maybe well over a half a year year ago at this point, we sold house and 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 relocated from Portland, Oregon. Uh, Portland's a place that I had basically lived in for the better parts of 25 years, and so yeah, it's definitely a bit strange suddenly now being, uh, I guess, a tourist in this town. I'm not. I say town now, but I'm not in Portland, Oregon at the moment. But uh, flew into Portland a few nights ago. In fact, this is the end of uh, end of day two on our shoot here on the job that we're doing down at Klamath Falls. And then we'll head back up to Portland for uh, for the next week to do a job there. But yeah, that's where I'll be recording uh, this podcast as well as next week's episode. So yes, I'm going to be in some different locations. Again, I'm now in, in a hotel room, so you could certainly hear some of the traffic outside. As it's possible. If not, uh, one of the five children that happen to be residing next door to me. Um, yeah, so that's fun stuff. At any rate, let's, uh, let's not waste any more time, shall we? Let, let's, let's, get into it. Uh, I would like to start today's episode off by reading a message that a doc lifer recently sent to me. I, I don't normally do this sort of thing, I guess, right out of the gate, uh, you know, usually an email, email or, or social media post from a fellow doc filmmaker, you know, it's reserved for later on in the program that, you know, the doc life, uh, the doc lifer community question of the week but we're going to reverse the order a little bit tonight and uh, and this message was was uh, sent me via our Instagram account which incidentally is the the underscore documentary underscore life the message came from a Tihanam and that's t i y a n a m that's actually her Instagram name Tihanam in case you'd like to follow her i believe she's based out of Vancouver British Columbia in Canada though i i can't be positively uh, certain about that she wrote I listened to the Doc Life podcast on my way to work, and I I just wanted to say that your podcast is the best. It wasn't until I started listening to TDL that I realized actually working in the industry was a real possibility, and that a big part of making a doc is just getting out there and and doing what you love. So thanks so much for inspiring me to get out there and do just that. I'm now working on a few different projects and have so much more confidence in myself. I hope that didn't sound self-deprecating, just very impressed with TDL. Keep them coming pretty cool note, right? That kind of thing it makes my heart soar and it helps me know that that I'm doing something right with this show. You know, it, it drives me to serve you in better ways. The thing is, I'm now starting to receive these kinds of inspiring emails and social media messages almost on a daily basis and and, and that signals to me something even greater. This show is starting to inspire and motivate people all over the world and on a consistent basis. And more than that, there's something bigger at work here, bigger than this show. The podcast is certainly part of the equation, but but I, I believe it to be more than the documentary life as podcast. I think it's about you as doc filmmakers, as a community that is starting to become more aware, more motivated more connected through this show. And it's about the films that you're creating, the documentary films that are your passion and, and that are now starting to happen at an exponential rate. I'm not sure that this is that this is a quantifiable thing, you know, that there that there's a way to measure all of this effect and impact that I'm kind of referencing here or, or alluding to this show, you know, the you filmmakers, your films. I don't, you know, I don't understand the science behind it nor do I have a way to, you know, collect the data so to speak. But if there's one thing that I've learned in my 45 years of existence, it's that I probably should 99.9% of the time trust my gut. And my gut's telling me that this show, this show's having an impact and that the impact it's even bigger than we may yet realize. I believe that the motivation and inspiration and information, however you want to describe it, you know, that we're all experiencing by this show is getting you out there to make your documentary films, or it's helping you get out there to make your documentary films. And your documentary films are very possibly, no, they're they're very probably opening people's minds and hearts. No matter how big or small a way, they're creating some change. Your films are having an impact on others' lives. And slowly but surely, you are changing the world. Believe it. Hey guys, over the past few episodes I've been asking for your help regarding the ratings and reviews area in iTunes, you know, getting more five-star ratings and reviews from you guys. It helps me become more visible on iTunes, which, you know, that allows more people to get some of the documentary content that you've been enjoying, which creates more chances for a network community of documentary filmmakers. You know, something that I'm trying to achieve with every show, every email, every tweet. I was hoping to appeal to your kindness and generosity, which is really my way of saying you know, light a fire under your butt by asking you to take 30 seconds of your time to give me a quick rating and review. I thought for sure I would have some success with this. Unfortunately, I'm sad to announce I was incorrect in that assessment. Since I started running that request three weeks ago, I've only received a handful of ratings and reviews at this point. Um... I realize a number of you have busy lives and then you probably listen to me while you're commuting to work or you're at the gym or you're mowing your lawn. I I get it. I do. That's part of the beauty of podcasts. that's often how really I'm listening to podcasts while I'm doing some other activity. I mean, who has time to sit down and just listen to a podcast? Actually, I do that late at night sometimes, but I realize I'm probably in the minority here. But if I could be so bold as to ask you to set a time or some kind of reminder so that the next time you get on your computer or mobile device, you take a moment and and go to iTunes and search for The Documentary Life. Click on the Ratings and Reviews tab and leave me a five-star rating and maybe a few words for a review. I would really appreciate it if you could. For last week's episode, we spoke with first-time documentary filmmaker Jennifer Brea about her film Unrest a film that takes a personal, then very global look at the illness known as ME or CFS, and how misconceptions and and misdiagnoses surrounding this mysterious illness have not only caused great pain and suffering historically in patients, who were often told that they were crazy and and then promptly put away in institutions, and in fact is, is still happening in many ways today. Jen's incredibly powerful film is already making waves in the medical community and MECFS community, and its theatrical run has only just begun. If you haven't listened to the podcast yet, I certainly would highly recommend doing so. It's truly one of the more moving and inspirational conversations that we've that we've ever really had here on the program. She talks about having a very powerful moment where she's been, you know, unable to properly describe verbally what she's been experiencing. She's talking to her physician, right? In fact, the the doctor is merely sort of taking Jen's words and, and, and finding the best diagnosis that he or she is accustomed to giving based on Jen's words. And Jen knows that the doctor, through no fault of the doctors really, Jen knows that the doctor's not getting what she's been trying to describe. And then she remembers that she's, she's recorded some of her episodes that she had recently had um, via her iPhone. And once the doctor sees the visual of these events, sees and hears what Jen's been experiencing, well, that changed everything. I fully expect her film, Unrest, that it has the power to create big awareness and potentially change within the medical community, which could greatly impact the lives of millions of people worldwide who suffer daily from MECFS. This is no small thing. And that's really resonated with me because that's the power we all have at our disposal, don't we? You know, with our cameras and our sound gear, we can be capturing the things that happen around us at any point in time, right? And in a way that none of our languaging would ever be able to capture. And we can be getting these films out into the world in a way that can transform and change the very world around us. That's the power that our documentary films can have. Now, if you're thinking, well, Chris, that, that's great now, but I, I just wanna tell stories. I'm not trying to create any massive change or, or anything like that. I, I totally get that, and, and I'm in no way suggesting that the, impi, you know, the impetus behind your filmmaking should necessarily be anything other than that, to tell a story, and to tell it in the best way possible. I, I'm not saying that we should all be social activists and, and politically motivated doc filmmakers, please know that would be terrible and tedious do you think that when i made my first doc about goat herders and goat herds in nepal trekking every year through the mountains you know ultimately to their sacrificial deaths that i was trying to make some big statement or you know create some big change i can assure you that i was not there was nothing lofty minded at all about what i was shooting other than to you know put a lens to an event in a part of the world that most of us might never get to experience I suppose yes, in a way. My my underlying desire was, you know, as it is with most of any of my filmmaking ventures, to show another culture, you know, that most of us again knew nothing about, in hopes of at least creating some sense of you know better compassion for the world around us. But but it's not a direct message or or a targeted desire of mine. You know, I just I just want to make good docs and and have a different experience, tell a story, and 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 share it with others. But while I don't think. Or, wish for that matter, that, that we should be out there creating documentary films with creating change in mind. I do want to continue to illustrate the power for shift and change that is, in fact, at our disposal, should we choose to do so. In prior episodes, I've, I've certainly mentioned the documentary I worked on initially in Cambodia, a doc film called Bomb Hunters, which was a film about villagers digging up old bombs, mortars, and rockets i.e. UXO, left over from years of civil war and the American bombing during the Vietnam War, and, and extracting the TNT from the metal, and then selling the metal onto the scrap metal trade later on. I remember that Sky, the producer and director for the film, telling me many times that you know he never considered himself a social activist who made films from a social activist sort of place. He considered himself a storyteller, and, and he wanted to tell the, tell the story of you know, what this segment of a society looks like and, and, and how it's still affected years after war and destruction. Now, later on, I would come to understand that this film was used by members of the U.S. State Department or members of Congress, I can't remember which one, to, to change legislation over the use of cluster munitions overseas. I think that you can directly make change, and you can also indirectly make change. Even just the telling of stories, I think it naturally it creates some sort of empathy, whether it you know be to a type of person, a race, a culture, a country. Unless the protagonist is is this you know awful person, it, it, it's pretty hard not to naturally want to understand where someone is coming from when you when you're watching their story, right? For instance, in the case of one of Barong Films' short films that uh, we did earlier this year called Fumi's Floral Shop, Um, it's a film we shot in Portland, Oregon, about a 94-year-old Japanese-American woman and and basically five generations of her family who had been running a local floral shop for 100-plus years. As part of her story, and, and really a part of American legacy for that matter, is her time that she and her family were taken away from Portland and forced to live in the internment camps during World War II. It's amazing to me how many Americans actually know little or nothing about this. These internment camps were, were set up all along the west coast of the U.S., and those of Japanese descent. Mind you, these people were Americans, but their ancestry was Japanese. They were effectively taken away from society and put into these camps where, where they had to stay until they were released after the war. Now, our film is not about this directly at all, but it certainly plays a part since this is a major part of her story. The film's really about resilience, since the shop at, you know, at, at one point burnt down while they were in camps. The, the shop was looted and, and vandalized. Family members died. Uh, today, the shop still exists in Portland as, as Kern Park Floral Shop, and it's run by Fumi's granddaughter and great-granddaughter. And again, the film was not about the internment camps at all. It was about family and, and the shop. But the internment camp played a part in the film. And watching the film, it's pretty impossible not to feel something deep down and sad, especially if you are an American, that these people were treated in this fashion. I don't think that Steph and I ever said, hey, let's make a film that opens people's eyes up, you know, to the internment camps in America during World War II. No, we, we, were, we were much more having conversations like, we got sh- to make this short about this 94-year-old Japanese-American woman and, and all of these other generations of Japanese-American women in her family that, that ran this cool shop in Portland. That being said, we also very much wanted people to see, you know, not only the resilience of this family and their shop, but also, also to take note of how we treated Americans, our fellow Americans, not that long ago. And yes, it it did just so happen that we were making this during the time when when, uh, Donald Trump was running for president of the U.S. and was busy shutting Muslims out of the country or talking about, you know, walls between the U.S. and Mexico. So we didn't shy away from people hopefully making parallels between, you know, what happened in World War II and perhaps what could still happen even today. Again, our intent was never to create any direct change or messaging even per se, like getting people to, I don't know, not vote for Trump or, or something or, or, or to change some kind of legislation to protect this type of thing from ever happening again. Not our intent, not why we were making the film at all. Our, our intent was certainly more subtle than that and, and really seems to be the approach that I've taken with my films thus far, which is to say that I hope to shine a lens on a group of people you know, tell their story in hopes of maybe creating a little space in, in, in someone's heart, you know, that perhaps wouldn't have otherwise been there and, and and allow for a little more love and empathy in the world. Call me a hippie, whatever. Yeah, uh, but but and by the way, I'm, I'm only now putting my film intentions to words and, and it's really pretty interesting. I should probably be giving way more thought to this kind of thing. It, it makes me think of, you know, how Mori Warshawski would speak of this sort of thing. And was on our program earlier in the, I guess earlier in the year or maybe later in, in last year. More, if you're out there, I, I swear I'm coming around to your idea of discovering, you know, one's core beliefs and values so so that I can certainly apply it to to future projects. But yeah, I think that's why I do films. I'm trying to create maybe some change. And again, it's in, in maybe in the hearts and minds of people, but you know, not, not, not such obvious change. Uh, I I want people to be opened up, I guess, and maybe just see that there is a whole wide world out there and, and that it's okay that, you know, hey, we don't all act, think, or live in the same way. I probably need to reel it in a little bit. I am going off on a bit of a tangent. At least I think I am. Some of you are out there though, right? Some of you are out there making films to tell stories and in the process perhaps create a little bit of awareness like, like, like I seem to be doing. Um, but there are some of you out there that are out there making films because you are directly hoping to move people to create some change that is most certainly, absolutely, definitely out there, right? You know who you are. I know for a fact that I have doc lifers like Michael Tintner or or filmmakers uh, Lindsay Grazel and and Dea Schlossberg who are often... Who are both on? Uh, we have doc lifers here on the show, like uh, Michael Tintner, who I mentioned a couple a couple of shows ago, or, or filmmakers Lindsay Grazel and Dea Schlossberg, um, who were both in the show earlier this year talking about this. Who they're all directly putting themselves in the line of fire, if you will, you know, to try and get their story. You know, you guys, Michael, Lindsay, Dea, and and and, and many of you are out there that are listening to the program. I know you guys are out there filming really important stuff, like freedom of the press and for. Uh, grave environmental issues. Uh, I've got one filmmaker, Beth, who, who who she's working on her first doc about how popular American television in, in in recent memory depicts the lesbian or gay communities, you know, in such a fashion that allows others to not to not feel alone or or subjected to ridicule based on their own sexual preference. Um, I know that uh, Sophia, I've mentioned her a few times on the program, Sophia down in Costa Rica, she's doing a film about the first gay marriage you know, in a country where it's quite illegal. Um, I have another doc lifer who's considering making a doc based on his own experiences with trauma and humiliation from a long ago event in hopes of uh, opening up dialogue and creating awareness for a younger population so, they, so that they may avoid the pain and suffering that he once went through. Wow, I mean, I could easily, honestly, I could rattle off a half dozen more of you guys who've shared your story and your projects with me over the past year. I didn't realize how easily and intimately I was able to access that information, you know, from the top of my head. You guys must be having some effect on me. (laughs) Of course you are, right? Of course. Uh, But seriously, think about it. There are a number, a great number of you out there who are making documentary films because you have something to say. You want to put a lens on an issue, and you aspire to create some direct change from your film. You've heard on this show the stories of doc filmmakers who are either uh, have or strive to create some change with their films. Um, early on, I had a, a gentleman by the name of Scott Squire, a filmmaker uh, who had a, I had a conversation with in the early days of the show. Uh, he and, and his wife Amy did a film called "Drawing the Tiger," drawing the tiger, I should say, whose whose central character is hardly even in the film at all because she has committed suicide. Scott and Amy have been returning to Nepal ever since. Nepal is where the film takes place. And they've come to realize that the story of suicide in the female teenage population has gone largely unnoticed. Even though the rate of suicide has gone up every year at a very alarming rate. Scott and Amy have now put together a curriculum that's now being used in schools, bringing this issue to light. Their film is obviously at the heart of the curriculum. And they're creating direct change with their film. Filmmaker Brent E. Huffman was also here on TDL discussing his film Saving Messinac about the race against time to, to save a 5,000-year-old Afghanistan archaeological site from destruction by a, a Chinese state-owned copper mining company. At the time of his filming, the site was, it was set to be destroyed within months. This film has been out for a while now, and, and still the site, to the best of my knowledge, it remains intact. Huffman's been on CNN, the BBC, you know, uh, Al Jazeera, I think as well. His story's been broadcast all over global media. Is it having an impact on keeping the site from being destroyed thus far, you know, by the mining company? I'm pretty sure there's no doubt of the impact that this film has had. So I'd like to finish this segment by acknowledging that this whole segment for this show was sparked by Miss Tianam from Instagram who wrote me, you know, her support and gratitude for what I'm trying to do with this show, it really affected me. And, and as I mentioned, it wasn't just Tianan. It It's all of you who have been writing me since day one of this show. And, and as I also may have mentioned, I, you know, I'm getting letters from you guys on a, on, on a daily basis. This show is having a direct impact on you as documentary filmmakers, as Doc Lifers. And that's amazing. And it is wonderful. And I am so happy and thankful. It's a part of what I've always envisioned with this show. But it's also more than that. It says to me that you are out there making documentary films. And this show and all of our stories, all of our journeys as filmmakers, it's inspiring, motivating, and informing you in some way to keep making these films. And so I'm going to leave you to ponder this. If this show is moving you to create more films, that means that there are more films out there for people to see, right? which then means that there is that much more chance to move people, to open the hearts and minds of people from all walks of life and from all over the world, and to keep creating more positive change every damn film, one film at a time. When we come back from the break, we'll be speaking with longtime film industry professional Patrick McGowan, who makes no bones about wanting to change the world with his new technology and concept called Black Box Global. Over the past decade, the world of documentary film promotion and distribution has changed dramatically. And what's awesome is for the most part is it highly benefits us independent doc filmmakers. However, we do recognize that navigating this new landscape of promotion and distribution can be a bit daunting when you're new to the task. Like, how do you make sense of the VODs and SVODs of the world? How do you find a distributor and sales agent that you can trust and who will work diligently to get your film out into the world? And what are they even looking for anyway? Or wait, maybe you should self-distribute your film. Maybe taking it out on a national tour is the right move for your film, but how would you even go about organizing such a thing? Is your film right for the potentially lucrative educational market, or are community screenings the way to go? There are so many options available to you to get your film out to its market, but there are a lot of questions you probably have about how to do it, which is why we help you make sense of it all in our flagship program, The Documentary Academy. Inside the Academy, you will create a tailor-made, multifaceted, hybrid documentary film distribution strategy, one that's created based on your film and your film alone. You will have a strategic overview of how you will get your film out into the world and in front of the people who want to see it. Take control of your film distribution and enroll in The Documentary Academy at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. We'll see you there. My guest today is Pat McGowan. Pat is a senior producer and director of In Motion, a production company and a marketing agency based out of Canada. He is also currently the CEO at Black Box Global, a revolutionary startup in the global content creation and distribution space. Pat, it's, uh, it's exciting to have you joining me today because uh, uh, we spoke earlier this week and uh, what you have to offer is going to be, uh, it's gonna be incredibly valuable information for my audience.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Pat, I think a great way to start today would be to get a little bit of background on who Pat McGowan is and, and eventually how In Motion came to be for you. I'm a
1: veteran of the industry and like a lot of other people, I fell into this industry and I fell in love. So I've had a <laughs> almost 30 year love affair with media production, started my, uh, my media life as a musician playing in a pop band, right. had a couple of record deals go sour in the eighties. <laughs> uh, I was a guy with the big hair and the keyboard rig and a saxophone. And, you know, uh, that led into, uh, being asked to write some music for some documentary videos, Oh wow. uh, in the eighties. And that was fun. And, yeah. um, my my passion at the time was studio work. Okay. So I really liked the studio. I loved playing in the studio. I loved engineering. I loved producing. I loved collaborating, working with the other creators to do something you know that's the the greater than the sum of its parts. Right. So I've always been of that ilk where you know <laughs> I, I never thought I should or could do everything. Yeah. And and didn't. And I really love that clip that creative collaboration that happens so really that's kind of always been my my preference is to work with other people right led me to uh going full-time in audio post and uh continuing to write music and then i leaned more towards just the audio post and operations and became interested in business and that led me into the picture side Uh, and i was always a photographer but i was not a trained cinematographer i'm basically self-taught at every single uh, and really just learned by osmosis and sat back and took it in and then tried it myself and, you know, managed to figure it out. So uh, I've been really lucky, I have to say. I'm, I'm I'm in my mid-50s now. I hate to, you know, spoil anybody <laughs> since I'm younger because I'm not. But, you know, being blessed and being able to uh, do what you really love to do most of the time yeah. has just been a fantastic uh, thing for me. So, you know, things were going along great uh, through the 90s and through the, uh, the early 2000s. And we had, you know, had to adapt to a bunch of market shifts, mostly technological, less on the business side. Uh, business was kind of the same all the way through those periods of, of time, those decades.
0: You say we, are you referring to uh, colleagues that you're working with or is in motion a business at this already at this point?
1: in motion was a production company that i actually purchased with a group of uh of partners who were like-minded folks in 1996. prior to that i owned an audio studio called blue turtle sound yeah when i say we it's more in the in the the collective we you know just moving through with different groups of people doing different things different business configurations and uh and really the big adjustment that had to take place for all of us in the industry was a technological one Mm. Uh, In particular, the arrival of nonlinear and the miniaturization of production equipment. So that created, you know, probably the first, you know, the first real challenge that that we had to adapt to. And we actually embraced those new technologies and uh, tried to stay ahead of the curve as much as we could. And uh, again, you know. Hundreds of projects, probably thousands of projects over the years that I've worked on, uh, from you know uh, feature film uh, support work, hmm. um, and really just had a great career, fantastic career. Hmm. Did some great work, excellent corporate stuff, advertising, even in training. And I, I was never, you know, I never had any barriers internally on what type of work I would do, because I always had a particular challenge.
0: In speaking with you earlier this week, you helped me understand what it is that, uh, what the changes are in the industry that occurred. A number of my listeners may not be old enough to understand what happened and why, um, and then plenty of my listeners absolutely will. So as a business owner, as a senior producer director for InMotion, tell us what happened, when it happened, And then, as a result, what is the pivot that you make as a business owner?
1: Basically, what has happened in the past three years, and it happened fast, is that a lot of work has gone client-side internal. Let's just take an example of a government department that used to contract out to get all of their video production work done.
0: Yes, They don't do that
1: anymore. They're hiring people internally. They're hiring uh, younger people. They are tooling them. It's now cost-effective for them to do that so that they've got readily available resources, human resources and technical resources to do what they do. Right. I have certain opinions about whether or not that's been good in terms of getting the work done well, which, as I've said, is kind of a focus for me. Yes. But the work is getting done. So there's less work for contracting Companies that were previously being contracted to like my company in motion So what we would take a look at is we say, okay, why did that happen? Well, it happened for a couple of reasons Uh, video became uh, ubiquitous Uh, Everyone says video runs the internet. Okay, okay, great. Well, what video and produced by who? Mm -hmm. So automatically assuming uh, and we you know, we we actually fell prey to this thinking that wow you know all this this video on the internet we're, we're just going to be rolling and work
0: of course of course myself included
1: oh well, did it work that way for you
0: well i would just say that a certain Well, I mean, I can just come right out and say it. Uh, I have worked many, many jobs when we were based out of Portland, Oregon for Intel. And Intel has made a big change here, like you're describing, pretty quickly in the past couple of few years. And their video production is, uh, so much of it now is happening in-house. And they were bread and butter for a long time for uh, for, uh, a client of theirs who I did a lot of work for. I had 50 clients like that. Right.
1: So three years ago, uh, and this is not a tale of woe, okay? So listeners No, it will there, not be. <laughs> you no, know, this, this isn't a sad story. This right, is actually right. a happy story. Yes. So this story has a happy ending. Right. But that's happening everywhere. That's happening in hospitals. That's happening in schools. That's happening in government agencies. It's happening in businesses. It's happening in high-tech companies. It's happening everywhere. Yes. The second thing that happened is agencies that used to come to the production house right. now do everything in-house. That's right. Uh, So the business became very very difficult to do and at the same time we were straddled from the corporate and advertising and training work into entertainment. So in motion actually we decided strategically um, five six or seven years ago we decided to diversify our offering and get into production services for feature films that were being produced here in our market. So we bought four Alexa cameras, a bunch of lenses, uh, all kinds of stuff to do that, lighting, grip, uh, you name it. So we bought all the gear that other people would use. So we opened a rental house in addition to our corporate production. So we had post-production capability. Um, So we did some service work, some client-side work. And then we also, at the same time, decided to bring in a team to develop a broadcast product Mm. as well. And we did very well with it. We actually had deals in the making, a couple of uh, MOUs in place, uh, one actual license granted for a very nice series, television, and uh, it all imploded pretty much at the same time.
0: Due to all these forces that you've explained.
1: Well, no, they're, they're part of it. But the big force that caused the implosion was Netflix. Netflix launched its subscription service, right, and Netflix started putting out content and Netflix, as, did,
0: uh, as did amazon
1: as well amazon's later later entrant right right and amazon by the way i do believe will be the big game changer for all of us which is why we really need to pay attention to this interesting okay we and,
0: we'll, and we'll get to that for sure
1: so <clears throat> so for me uh we were uh, i'm i'm not afraid to say we got flattened yeah so the company was flattened. we had you know almost 40 employees. We had three offices in Ottawa, Toronto, and Calgary. We had a very, very rough, rough time. And it was extremely difficult. Uh, but anybody that's been through such an experience knows there's two ways to look at it. Yeah. You can go and uh, hang your head or you can take it as an opportunity to change. Right. And I took Opportunity to
0: change. So, Pat, after all of this time, after working in the industry for years, uh, after running inmotion.ca and as a very successful production and marketing agency, at this point, as you've described, uh, the worlds did kind of crumble for you guys. And you also said to your, you know, as you said yourself, at that point, you have two options it's either walk away, hang your head, or do what you did, Pat, which is what?
1: I was sitting in my boardroom with my wife, who is active in the business, and we were just saying to ourselves, well, if we're not making any money, who the hell is making money? Ah. And so we went to YouTube, which, you know, honestly, I hadn't paid a lot of attention to it because I was working in this other dimension.
0: Of course, you know? of course, <laughs> myself included.
1: So I just looked up top 10 YouTubers.
0: And, um, you Didn't know, that blow your mind? <laughs> it really blew my mind
1: and, and it woke me up to a reality that, um, user generated content is the future right. for that sector, but, but I also extrapolated out and I feel that user generated content is the future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So who are the users right now? User generated content is usually one person, you know, with a GoPro or, you know, one person working with another Crew that has a, a DSLR, right. And they kind of work it out, and they become these YouTube stars. That's right. fine. Great right. u- vlogging on gener-
0: YouTube. That's right.
1: I call it user-generated content 1.0, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. always going to have life because now we've we've got to the point where you know these platforms and, and the audience are 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 loving it. You know, it's That's great.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: But I I believe there's room for user-generated content 2.0, which is. Um, My vision is is that bigger teams of specialists will come together the same way that they always did, but do user-generated content that they co-own and co-market and co-earn with. In other words, you own the content. Um, And how I got to this was uh, we were looking around our shop and going, what do we have of value here? And I had always wanted to do stock footage uh, as a business as a side business, and I just never got around to it. Well, now it was time to get around to it. So three years ago, <laughs> I went to all of the footage that I had shot, personally, and had title to, which was a significant amount, because some of our contracts had uh, 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 had provisions to turn the rights over to the client, but
0: many didn't. Yeah, fantastic, so, fantastic.
1: So we had title to a lot of role, in fact, you know, in, in many cases, we would actually, I'll get into that in a minute when we talk about how the fractional ownership works. Hmm. So, what I did is I actually converted all of that into clips and took a while and then uploaded it to as many of the agencies as I could find. And lo and behold, the money starts rolling
0: in. We've talked about stock footage and how that can certainly, you know, be a benefit to, to documentary filmmakers and how you can take advantage of footage that you may already have and that may be, you know, buried or sitting on hard drives for years and how you can use that for some passive income. So stock footage has definitely been something we've covered a little bit here on the show.
1: Yeah, that's cool. I actually listened to your episode, I think it was number twenty three. And uh, Oh, the and, diversifying and, income. Yeah. Right,
0: right, right. <laughs> Great. Exactly.
1: So, you know, this is all part of the story for creators that diversifying your income is really important. Yes. But I think there's a bigger override here, mm-hmm. and that's that owning your own content is, yeah. is going to become more and more important. And retaining ownership of your intellectual property is going to be a game changer for many people. But there are, there are lots of pitfalls and barriers and things that will preclude you from doing that, you might think. But what we have done is we've actually... Through through my journey, I'm saying, okay, look, I got I got these 6,000 clips that I mined from my archives, you know, that I've shot over the last 10 to 15 years. Right. We put it out there, and it started to make money. Yeah, yeah. So then I started to think, well, what if I don't want to edit this stuff? Like I've got I've got basically three choices on how to process this material. And anyone that has ever processed stock footage and done the metadata knows that it's thankless. Like it's completely thankless work. I certainly not.
0: <laughs> I have a couple of friends out there when they hear that they will be chuckling, and shaking yeah. their head and said, "Oh God, yeah. yes." <laughs> so,
1: uh, so what happens then is people don't do it. So I, I want to so my enterprising mind thought, well, how can we streamline this and how can we make this better for people that do own this footage or want to create new footage? Yeah. but they don't want to do the icky stuff of uh, And editing is great. I mean, editing is just editing. But adding metadata is, uh, it's, it's a clerical function that requires great intelligence because you need to be able to maximize the value of that clip in the metadata.
0: Right, right. That's
1: really, really important. So you don't want to shirk it and you don't want to give it to somebody that's not going to know what they're doing. Not familiar so with it, a, right. You know, you're between a rock and a hard place now because you need a pro and they cost money yeah. and or you don't get it done right and then you don't make money. So it's a problem. Well, uh, so I said to myself, okay, what's the barrier here? Well, the barrier here is that the editor needs to be paid. So this brings along a completely different, like a much broader discussion, uh, Chris, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that's the concept of commodification of content.
0: Indeed, and that's exactly where we are headed (laughs) with this conversation.
1: There's no question that content has been commodified. And we are in the early stages of the full fruition of that business model.
0: Well, and I'd like to stop for a moment, Pat, to just kind of give an example of that. And you and I were talking the other day, uh, a very good friend and colleague of mine also, uh, who is based out of Portland, Oregon. He's been a, a photographer there for years. And um, and he has has used the stock photo agencies a number of times over the years. He's uh, He sells a bunch of stock footage like yourself. Stock photography, I should say, and he was explaining to me how how of recent years Getty has kind of changed the way that they do business now, and they're often simply hiring, you know, they're they're hiring these 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 young guys who young guys and gals I should say who who come out of school and they're looking to get their first jobs, and you know Getty will post an ad in a Craigslist or somewhere um, somewhere in a community and basically say, hey, look, we need uh, we need photographers or we need cinematographers, uh, you need to own the camera. But what we will do is we'll supply you with the location. We supply you with the talent. All you need to show up is on that day. We're going to give you six hundred dollars. You just give the footage to us when you're done, and that's how. And that's the commodification that you're speaking to, correct, Pat?
1: Absolutely true. Uh, But it's even broader than that. Yeah. So um, basically, what we what we've got is a situation now where labor is being treated as uh, piecework. Yes. where intellectual property rights are expected to transfer to the contractor.
0: Mm. <laughs> now and, you're talking Netflix and Amazon, uh, are you not? <laughs> well,
1: all, pretty much, you know, any platform is is vying to do this, right. but they still are doing the other business model, which is a revenue share with the creator. Right. So I think what's happening is it's uh, well, TIFF just happened in Toronto, and I just read a great article in Variety about the fact that very few quote-unquote, acquisitions were made. Um, In fact, it was very, very few commissions were made for new work.
0: Mm.
1: Financing is not being committed to new work. What is happening is um, the platforms are investing in producing content, which is fine. They're no different than Hollywood Studio and Network. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and that's fine. there's no, nothing wrong with that business model, but they all offer the other business model where they'll revenue share on finished work. so if you can if you can have finished work put on that store shelf and it's no different than a supermarket mm. Supermarket has so much uh, shelf space. Mm. Amazon and uh, Netflix have so much shelf space. Mm-hmm. So you've got good work to get the shelf space right. or you can go use another platform. but right now those are the, the predominant ones, right. Um, and of course, YouTube is coming along with their subscription offering. So there's going to be some consumer choice out there. Yeah. Now these these companies are massive. I mean, Amazon is just something unto itself. <laughs> uh, Netflix is tiny by com- by comparison when you look at the numbers. Right. And Google is no one to mess with. Yeah. So, without being you know without trumpeting the call of revolution here, I think yeah. we all have to be very very careful that we don't become indentured labor to these very large multi global multinational internet companies mm-hmm. basically. So there is a risk of that happening, uh, but there is another way. And so the other way uh, I postulate, or I believe, uh, is to form into a like-minded group at a global level of creators that do three things. They work together to make valuable content that they co-own, that is delivered to these digital supermarket shelves for all its consumption, and then the money flows back and the creators get their fair share of the long-tail revenue that will come for years. So there's two things that happen there. First of all, they get paid probably better than they would have as piecework because they retain the financial value of the content. The second thing that happens is they own a channel, like you actually own that content.
0: Yeah, and and not only that, Pat, think of how many... Think of how many gigs a number of us have done. All of us, really, at some point, where we've done the free gig to either, you know, get the get the, you know the get the work on the reel, or to get connected with the production company or the coordinators or the production managers. Um, how many times have we done that? Or how many times have we done work at uh, at half rates, half day rates, or no day rates, in the hopes of sort of that 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 carrot that's dangled in front of us, right? That hey, if this if this pilot gets picked up, you're going to be our first call, or We'll get you on, we'll get you, you know, once this gets picked up, we'll be able to pay you your day rate. And and how many of us have actually experienced that and actually, actually ended up making any sort of money or getting our day rates afterwards?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the age old thing. I mean, really, if you're a professional, you should be paid. And if you're doing professional grade work, then the value of that work will be determined by the marketplace. And what we want to do is remove the barriers that exists today for creators to come together, make valuable content, own their piece of that content, and derive
0: the financial value when it goes out to market. And you know what? Have we, can I ask you, Pat, since the beginning, have we even mentioned the name of your company? You have not. <laughs> okay. I've waiting to ask. <laughs> Pat, why don't you tell us the name of your company, and then I'd love for you to give us a a real time example, um, something that you actually uh, I think did maybe as early as as as, as uh, this past week, where you actually had you had a production, and all of the members essentially were not making day rates; they were actually practicing what you do with this with this business, which is called Black
1: Box. Thank so you. it's uh, www.blackbox.global. And we we went with a dot global because we really wanted people to understand this is a global initiative.
0: I'll bet. I'll
1: bet. Here's a case in point. Well, we're starting with stock footage, so the offering today, when you go to that website, is going to be it's going to look like a stock footage aggregator site. Right. Uh, we did the stock footage aggregation business piece because it was well, it was the easiest to do.
0: I'll bet. Yeah, that uh, makes sense.
1: Because. There are established, so remember we used the supermarket analogy earlier. So there are established retailers Shutterstock, Pond5, Video Blocks, Dissolve, Adobe, and, and more. Right. So what, what we did is we said, we're going to treat this like any other business. We're going to take product manufactured by our members, we're going to place it into retail, and retail will give us our share of the money which we will distribute back to the members, and we take a 15% handling
0: fee. 15% is what Black Box gets. The rest of the money goes to the creators. Exactly. Okay. That's right. So in essence what I've done is I've agreed right I've agreed to be a part of this uh, through black box in this example. What I have done is I've accepted a deal where I I'm not uh, I don't I don't receive a day rate for the work that I've done. instead based on those in- industry day rates you've come up with a percentage of what say each position would be worth and that is the percentage that I would get from this point forward every time say that piece of footage or photograph sells. Well that's
1: exactly right. And okay. and what we what we do is we recommend that our members have that discussion mm. before cutting a deal. Mm. So it's really like an automated deal memo. And so um, when you get into the system you'll see if you contribute a clip, you can add a curator and you can offer them oh, a curation
0: percentage. Okay. Interesting. And then
1: they will they will in turn either accept that or message you back saying, well, I think based on the nature of the material, it's probably worth more yeah. or less, okay. you know, when they want to say less very much. But okay. uh, at any rate, it's, it's a pretty cool little system. I'll ask you a question, Chris. How yes. many times have you been paid on a deferral?
0: Well, I think that's what I was getting to earlier. Uh, shall we start with zero?
1: See, most people would answer that. With black box, that can never happen. Right. It's not a deferral. It's actually co-ownership of content that's generating money from a global marketplace. And you have a share of that. So then what we did is we took the stock footage concept and we said, okay, yeah, well, the stock footage concept is great. But, but let's take a look at an example of that. Let's say you want to do footage of uh, millennials in a coffee shop. Hmm. Okay, so what do you need? I have done that. (laughs) Cool. And and I have too. Yeah. So so you want to do that. So do you want to use models or real people? Do you want to use a location? Do you want to do it in a studio? Do you want to – how do you want to do this? Okay, so you come up with kind of your production requirements. You say, okay, how much would it have cost me to hire the model, to hire the location, Mm. to pay the crew, to pay the post guy? And you put it into the spreadsheet and you come up with your percentages. It's really
0: simple. Right,
1: and you want it that to be as fair as possible. You don't want to gouge anybody. Now, if you want to pay the models, pay the models. Go ahead, and maybe you take that back on your share, right? Mm. So you can do that at any level. You can do it at a two-person level. You can do it at mm. a fifty-person level. You can do it at a five hundred-person level on yeah. a feature film.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: I had um, someone approach me recently who is involved with uh, the arm wrestling community, and this is this is the coolest bunch of folks you've ever met in your life and wanted to do something uh in terms of developing um you know either a youtube product or whatever and i said well if we do it as a black box project i think we can make this happen Mm. because i don't think i want to go through i i just personally do not want to go through the aggravation of developing for television or developing for feature films anymore within the standard framework
0: and I'm why would you? Why, I mean, being an owner of Black Box, having experienced what you did for years and years with InMotion, I don't see why you would, why you would even consider doing it any other way. It's got to be the Black Box way, I would think, for you. Right. So
1: what we did is we said, okay, what do we need? We need six cameras. We need a studio. We need lighting. We need players. And these people are just normal, everyday folks. Like, it's, it's grunt reality. It's raw. And, uh, and then we need Post. And then uh, we need probably a showrunner to help us in post, not necessarily in in uh, in pre and in production, because we want to do it really raw. Uh, but we need someone who can you know guide us through uh, building the story arc from what we capture. So we're looking for right now, by the way, on the black box uh, blackbox dot global Facebook group, which is for members only. We actually have uh, a notice up there looking for someone to cut the multicam. I saw that, and uh, and so we're looking for that person. And then once we see what we have in the raw elements, then we're going to be looking for a a director, showrunner type person. It might be me to uh, to knit that storyline and to add extra elements. and right. uh, And so this is a black box project. So what are you what are you doing on the way? When you come in, you say, I'm going to spend my day on set with my gear the studio owner gets a piece of the pie the players get a piece of the pie anybody that put in time and effort gets a you know a pro rata piece of the pie and so uh this is the way we we think media can be produced in the future and uh we think that that we're offering a platform that that kind of does all that stuff that you don't like doing
0: pat now I absolutely can't speak highly enough about this concept. Um, I love it. I really, really want to buy into this. But what I need to understand, Pat, what I'm not hearing here is how does this How is, how does this really work for say any number of my listeners who say they have a project, they have an idea. Do they go to black box and join the black box community and then find the other people that can help them out within their community? How does this work in a sort of a practical sense? It makes sense that you Pat being the CEO, right, of black box, and you've already made a number of connections, you know, people in the industry, it's going to, it's going to work for you, but how does it work for me and how does it work for my listeners who just go to join, join black box? How do we then network with other people that can help us? I mean, they may not even be in our community, right?
1: Well, exactly. So, uh, in, in the case of this uh, project that I'm working on, I might have an editor from Sri Lanka for all I know, right? who, who kind of, you know, is attractive to the team. So, um, you asked a great question. And in fact, if you join black box, you are now in that community. I'll mm. say so you can make yourself known Through our social media channels, but you can also make yourself known by starting a project. So let's say you have an idea, Chris, and Mm. you say, I'm going to do, I want to do a documentary about river rafting. Mm. So you put up a project notice that says, putting together a team, this is where we're going to be shooting. I need these roles filled. Uh, It's in this geographic location. And you see what comes back out of the black box community. Which by the way is still under a thousand people.
0: Okay? Mm-hmm. So okay.
1: Unlikely you're gonna be able to find your team there. Or you can go out to your local Facebook page for your location and say, I am doing um, I'm doing a spec project. Of course, right, right. It's part of blackbox.global. You have to be a member in order to be part of the team. Uh, message me for more details. Uh, which is kind of what we're doing right now. Okay. So we are in we are in early stages of doing this concept. Yeah, and uh, we are um, we're looking to build that community. Signing up now is is a a good way to kind of get a feel for it. If you have a lot of footage that you want to take to market that you haven't had time to or don't know how to, it's a great way to do that and to get involved in a passive revenue stream. So if you want to own a piece of the pie. So you don't have to do the whole pie, right? So we've been we've been kind of relegated right. to this status as independent free agent creators that we have to do it all ourselves. Right. Uh, and that if we don't do it all ourselves, we lose control, and that's a bad thing, right? But in, in black box, you don't have to worry about that. Okay? You've got the support of your other creators, but you've also got the assurance of a platform that makes sure that your rights, your ownership is noted, and that any financial activity that happens with that content you will be paid your share and that's a you know that's really hard to do without a structured <laughs> platform like the one that we built
0: We've been speaking with Pat McGowan. Pat McGowan is the CEO of Black Box Global. Pat, the things that you've been talking about here today, um, you know, I'm not trying to be dramatic by saying they're pretty mind shifting and bending, but th- they really are, and this is coming from someone who's been in the industry for a bit, not as long as yourself, but, uh, uh, the better part of uh, a decade and a half and just seeing how the industry has changed even in the past five, six years alone. Um, you, the things you're speaking of are, is something that we have needed for a long time. So, man, uh, sign me up. <laughs> Tell me again how I, how I can get involved with Black Box Global.
1: Okay. Well, all you have to do is just go to the website, www.blackbox.global, and then hit the registration button and join the community. Registration is free. And, uh, you know, come on board, poke around, see what's going on, join our Facebook group. You'll get an invitation when you join. And I try to reach out to each and every member and welcome them personally and let them know that this is a good place to be as a creator.
0: Pat. What a phenomenal conversation. This is going to be just really, really great, uh, valuable content for my listeners. And uh, I'm sure they're going to be eager to, to check out Black Box. And uh, I'm going to be eager to have you on here back in the future to see how see how you guys have evolved along the way. Thank you so much for being on The Documentary Life. Thank you, Chris. It's really been a pleasure. Don't forget, we'd love to have you join us in the Documentary Academy. Come and take a look at how we can help you make your best documentary film at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. That's thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.